I went to see Duran Duran. Mm. I asked to see Duran Duran. I was a huge yeah. fan. The videos were cool. The sound was cool. And I went to that concert. There was probably 20% guys there. And I was yeah. in the 20%. I'm Nick Harcourt. And this is The Sound of Success, a podcast about the music that has shaped the lives of the money, business, and tech world's most fascinating people. Join us each week as we hear about the songs and bands that left their imprint on the folks who shape finance. I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to The Sound of Success. Our guest this week is Eric Balchunas. He is Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg, and uh, in that gig, he writes articles uh, featuring stories about ETFs for the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. He also appears in a weekly on-air segment for Bloomberg TV and radio, that's my world, Exchange Traded Friday, in which he discusses different ETFs and the way investors can utilize them. But it's not just about that. He's a published author. His book, The Institutional ETF Toolbox, uh, published a few years ago, is at once a primer on ETFs that both uh, novices and professionals have found easy to understand, as well as a guide to doing proper due diligence on the fast-growing world of ETFs. The book, of course, is available wherever you get books. Uh, and in addition, puts out the Bloomberg ETF newsletter and is a regular speaker at both Bloomberg events as well as industry conferences. Uh, there's a ton more as well, but did I get it right? Is that a good uh, good summary for, for our introduction? Yeah, I would just uh, throw a shameless plug-in that I have a, a podcast called Trillions that is um, available on iTunes or wherever they have podcasts. Thank you. So listen, before we get into the music, because that's what we're going to talk about in a moment, how are you? How are things in your world? And how are you feeling about the markets as the US appears to be emerging strongly out of the pandemic? I feel good overall. You know, this, I've been working from home now for a little over a year. And you know, there's pros and cons to that. I'm really just trying to focus on the pros. But I miss interacting. I'm looking forward to getting back. And I think this summer is I'm going to start I'll be like riding a bike with training wheels. And then by the fall, I think they'll be off and I'll be back to normal for the most part, uh, moving around and talking to people. And I do miss that. Although it is nice to sort of be done work in your home. There is no commute time. That is a wonderful thing. So I'm going to try to hybrid it a little more in the future. Um, and then the markets look, they're obviously really good. My 401k and, and all of our retirement uh, investments have really done well simply because we're heavy in the U S we're heavy in equities and they've just been great. The Federal Reserve has helped along, but the economy's also done a lot of, of that lift as well. So knock on wood, hopefully it keeps up, but I'm also not a trader type. I, I really just try to set it and forget it, even though I do cover a lot of the daily moves in the market. Yeah, I figured you probably got your finger on the pulse. Um, and we had a change in government, of course, at the beginning of the year and the feds, well, it's a different feds now, is it? Well, it's the same Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, and it's generally dovish. That's what's interesting about the, the past few presidents, whether it was Obama or Bush or uh, Trump or Biden, the Fed's always been pretty dovish. And that's really almost more important than who's president in many ways. And the markets love that because they just like to know they've got this big, giant institution that has their back if things go really bad. And it wasn't like that in the 90s and 80s. You just The market just fell and it hurt and it was painful. So some people argue that that's almost like putting the market on a drug and now it's addicted to the Fed. And so fundamentals don't matter. It's an ongoing debate that is for smarter people than me. 
<laughs> well, I think you've just given us a good idea of how it works. Appreciate it. How, how are you? I mean, after working for a year from home, and where are you? What else have you been able to, to catch up on in the last year with the fact that obviously when you leave the office, you walk into the living room or the, the kitchen or, or something like that? How's it been for you? The two things that stand out in the pandemic were one, just working with my oldest son uh, on uh, getting his some sports skills going because he hadn't played sports. He's 10. So he, he signed up for football and baseball and he's you know, to go in at that age is, is not that easy because some kids have been playing, but he's, he's done pretty well. So we use a lot of that time together to sort of play in this lot across the street. And it's been nice seeing him blossom into a baseball player and football player and just spending time with my other son, you know, teaching him to ride the bike. So the family time has been really nice. And then the other thing I did was because I, the show that I do for Bluebird TV is on hold because they need a full production staff there. So that show is dark. I still do my regular job, but I, I had a, a little extra wiggle room and I had been wanting to write a book, a second book. And so I was able to use the opportunity of the pandemic and a lot of that home time to actually just generate this book. And I just handed the, manu- the first manuscript last week. So I feel like 20 pounds lighter. It was really, it was hellish there for a while. Now I'm feeling much better. What's the book about? So it's a book called The Bogle Effect, and it's about Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard. And I had three different hour-plus interviews with him in the five years before he passed away. And so I was like, I, I don't want those interviews to just sit in that dictaphone. And they were gnawing at me a little bit. And so I, I knew I had to do something with them. So I just combined them with some of the research that we do. And a lot of the research we write, a lot of the trends you see, if you just pull the thread on the trend, you keep pulling. You end up back into Jack Bogle's brain in 1974 and setting up Vanguard as an investor-owned company, like a nonprofit almost. And that decision has just become so massive. And now all the flows go to either Vanguard or people who copied their index funds or ETFs at low cost. So this one guy has had such an impact. And I, I wanted to try to deconstruct it and make it simple for someone and uh, look at all the areas that have been impacted and try, try to tell a, uh, a good guy, a, a good Wall Street story. Most of those Wall Street documentaries and movies are all about criminals. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I was like, because there was a BuzzFeed-esque article once on a Bloomberg Opinion article that I wrote about how Vanguard saved people a bunch of money. I, I calculated it to be a trillion dollars. And so this millennial style personal finance site wrote a, a headline that said, some guy you've never heard of saved us all billions of dollars. And the article, it was interesting to see a millennial interpret the Vanguard world like that. And you could tell they were interested. And I thought, well, I mean, this might be a good opportunity to bridge that gap and write a book that's sort of a primer and a little bit of a homage to him. You know, I passed away. And so I interviewed like 50 people, got a bunch of uh, quotes and comments. So it's almost like a pseudo documentary inside a book. And I'm, I'm glad I did it. I feel good. Um, I, that said, I gave them too much. We've got to edit about 50% of it down. It's almost like I gave them a double album. I know you're, this is a music <laughs> thing. So it's like I gave them um, a double album and they want one album. So we, the good news is there should be some good B-sides. Well, and the album yeah. we put out should be tight. It should be. And, and you know, listen, it's, all, it's always better to have stuff to cut than somebody to say, there's only half the book here. What are you talking about? So uh, congratulations on getting that done and getting the manuscript in. When do you uh, expect or hope that it will uh, be published? It's probably not going to come out until early next year. 
and I'm looking forward to that. So that said, as you write it all now, it's it's it'd be it's going to be weird to look back. Like like a year is a long time. Hmm. So hopefully it's fresh. I tried to write as much evergreen in there as possible. Luckily, this is an evergreen topic. This trend isn't going anywhere. You're listening to The Sound of Success. I'm Nick Harcourt, the host of the podcast for Spark Network. And our guest is Eric Balchunas. And, you know, we started off by talking about what you do for a living. And now we're going to get to the fun stuff, I hope. My business is music. So let's talk a little bit about your music and your musical uh, memories. Uh, What's your earliest musical memory? People always say, what's your first concert? I can't remember which one was first, but around the time I was 11 or 12, somewhere in there, I went to see... Duran Duran. Mm. I asked to see Duran Duran. I was a huge yeah. fan of the videos. You know, when uh, he's running around and hungry like the wolf, I just, the videos were cool. The sound was cool. And I went to that concert. I was probably, there was probably 20% guys there. And I was yeah. in the 20%. Yeah. It was a lot of screaming girls, but I love the show. And then um, I went to John Cougar before he was Mellencamp as my dad was into that show. And he brought me to that show. And one thing I remember about that one, which was cool, is that he was like, you know, in Jack and Diane, when he says yeah. two kids that uh, grew up in the heartland, he said grew up in Austin, Texas. Like he, he personalized the lyric. I thought that was pretty cool. No, and that was could, a good show, too. Because you were in Austin, Texas. Obviously. Yeah, we were, yeah, that's where I was. Sorry. I was in Austin at the time. Right. And we go to see the show. And that, w- that really woke me up to the live show isn't the album, right? You're going to get those different personal touches and imperfections and those are my first two memories of shows were you listening to music though before that in the car or anything like that do you have any uh, musical memories of songs on the radio or being played in the house yeah sure i still talk to my dad about this my dad had recently got divorced i think it was when i was nine or ten and he went to live with his buddy and man did they have a great record collection and i would just scope the records i remember elo because those albums were amazing. They were, for a kid, I mean, they had this whole thing and it was like this spaceship inside. And mm-hmm. it was a very cool physical touch album where they've got all this artwork. I also remember The Cars, the album that begins with Since You've Been Gone. I love The Cars. And they had a couple Cars albums and they had Prince Delirious. And I remember listening to that right before Purple Rain came out. And then obviously they exploded then. But they were pretty good on their music. They had a lot of good, they had Bruce Springsteen. So I got a good education on good music early from my dad. And I do remember once he was like, he would put in Jimi Hendrix. Um, I forget which one, the one with the three of them are on there. And they're, they're sort of, they're all three right there. And it's got Foxy Lady and yeah. uh, Purple Haze. And he played that a lot. And I thought that was a re- re- pretty good album. So I guess I picked up on this, but then I went on to, I went into pop. I got into some like hip hop and R&B in the 80s. I got into like Duran Duran pop music. So um, I've definitely gotten into some different areas, but I think I had a good grounding from those early albums that were sitting at my dad's house. I I love the fact that you appreciating the tactile connection to the music by, you know, holding 12 inch pieces of cardboard that had things that folded out and amazing graphic design that is beginning to come back, of course, with vinyl, but we gave it up so easily, didn't we? When you think about it, we we're like, oh, this is too much to carry around. We'll take cassettes. And then they were kind of not that good. Oh, we'll take these little things around. And then 
you you lose all of that fantastic creative artwork and packaging but it is beginning to come back a bit and i'll come back to that in in, in a moment and talk about the various formats that we've listened to music on but uh i love the fact that you mentioned duran duran and elo because they're both from my hometown in birmingham in england as opposed to birmingham um and uh yeah man duran duran i mean they had all those hot women in their videos and if you're 12 or maybe a couple of years older than you maybe 20 and you're looking at those videos you're like i want to be in that group yeah duran duran also had an artistic touch this was not the typical boy band in my opinion they were trying to do something that was creative and artistic they had minor chords in their songs they weren't just total fluff in my opinion and they had something that sounded somewhat postmodern. if you're in 85 duran duran sounds like the reflex you don't even know what the words are about it it doesn't even make any sense and i kind of like that i like to be a little confused at first right so that i was drawn to them for for that reason too and then but yeah at the show when they showed the bass i think his name's john taylor they would the girls would scream at different levels depending on who they showed sure the one guy they barely screamed for it i felt bad for him (laughs) who was the guy they didn't scream for it was the lead guitarist i think he was a little on the shorter side i think that was Um, andy taylor who's i think that's it yeah. No relation to uh, John Taylor. But John yeah. Taylor got the most. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting too, because I was like, shouldn't the lead singer get the most? But anyway, yeah. this is so random, but very vivid memory though. I will never forget that show. Do you remember the first album you bought with your own money? Oh, that's a good one. My guess, it was probably a movie soundtrack. I, I remember going to the movies a lot in the 80s. It was probably something like Rocky or uh, Beverly Hills Cop or, or something like that. Um but I can't specifically remember the first album I bought with my own money. That said, once I started buying albums, I got into it. I was pretty obsessed, especially starting at about you know, 18, 17, 18, through kids. When I had kids, I, it became a little harder to pursue. I, I've been trying to get back into music lately, but I had a good like 15-year run where, where I was really into it. And I was lucky because right when I got really into music, right around high school is when 90, it was like 90, 91. And that's when, you know, grunge hit and the music got really good. A lot of creative, you know, emotive performers started coming up at that time. And I feel lucky that I was able to, to get into, that I had that love of music right at that time. So did you really sort of come of age with the Gen X bands? Are you Generation X? Is, is yes. that your demo? Uh, obviously, alternative rock, as it was known at the time, just blew up in the early 90s, coming out of Seattle and, and uh, Nirvana, of course. But so much other stuff in the 90s. Uh, name some of the other artists that you were into back then. So I remember being in Maryland and I was into real pop stuff like Millie Vanilli, Keith Sweat, uh, a lot of R&B, uh, Belle Biv DeVoe. But then when I moved to Tennessee, I had a tougher time in high school. And this is before Nirvana. The, the radio station in Tennessee, let's say it goes from like 88 to 106. From 92 to 105 is all country. But before early, like uh, number 90 was the Vanderbilt College Station. And my God, did I lock into some good music there. I got into Nine Inch Nails and then the Pixies. Then I was starting to watch uh, Dave Kendall's 120 Minutes on MTV. which, sure. And then I would start to go to Rolling Stone and look at the college the Just. top college albums, and I just start buying them. And then my, my whole life changed with Pixies Doolittle. That album I got, this is pre-Nirvana. At first, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Again, I like to be confused at first, but by, by listen number five or six, I was like, oh my God, this just blew my mind. And then when Nirvana hit, that was a whole thing. And then Nine Inch Nails, and then all this stuff, The Cure, 
So I was into a lot of those underground bands. Nirvana just simply was the catalyst that blew it all up. But there was a lot of kindling set for that whole movement in that college rock, you know, 88, maybe to 91. There was a lot going on there, too. But I would say those are the bands that that I was really attracted to. Um, and, And then obviously getting into some of the more standard grunge bands at the time as well. But I was I was not like, oh, I heard Pearl Jam Alive and I was into it. I was definitely a little more deep into it way before that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, 88 was when I think it was 89, actually, when I got into radio and uh, I was working in a small market commercial radio station in Woodstock, New York at the time. I was very fortunate that, you know, I was a warm body whose hands and legs worked for five dollars an hour on, the, on an overnight shift. But I, I remember the college stations were driving the new music. The college stations were the people who were exposing the new music. And I've been fortunate to have a career in public broadcasting since then as well. And it seems that college stations, public uh, stations are the ones that even now will, will still take chances as uh, radio in general has just become so homogenized. I mean, we have obviously other options now with a satellite and, uh, and internet and all that. Where do you listen to, to music uh, yourself these days? How do you discover music? It's funny. 103.3 is the Princeton radio station. I still listen to it. And every now and then I'll hear a song on there. Sometimes there's weird stuff. Like you're like, this is, I don't even know what's going on, but <laughs> I like that. But I can't, it's not even, I need a little melody. You know, I, I can't go full, you know, uh, I get it. full avant-garde. I, I need a little yeah. melody to hang on to. Sure. But they'll get into, I'll get a good DJ on there sometimes. And I'll sit in the car and wait for them to go over who they just played. I'll still do that occasionally, but that's rare. Mostly what I do now is um, YouTube has a very good algorithm. So I'll find something that I like, and then I'll just type it into YouTube. And then I'll start surfing around the right-hand side. The algo is very good. I don't use uh, Spotify. I like to own my music. So um, I know people swear by it. So I'll just pick some stuff that I like and I'll sort of discover some new bands that way or at least a couple new songs. And then I'll just make this nice shuffle for like each like quarter of some of the new music I like. But I do like to have a refreshing bunch of new music because there's something inspiring about it and you know when you like a a new song it's nothing like it rather than going and just living in the same songs from the past that said i still have a definite regular consumption of radiohead i went through a huge phase of them i still like them bob dylan i discovered bob dylan late but his catalog is unbelievable especially you're like how he did this when he's like 22 what's going on here and so there's a lot of bands who have like hundreds of songs that I will sometimes work into some mixes but I try to freshen it up and those are some of the ways and I have this guy who lives in Toronto who's the brother of my friend from college and he's always got his nose into stuff so he sends me some stuff too and that helps and almost everything he sends me is gold do you have Spotify or any streaming services I don't you don't I'm thinking of getting them I like to have the music downloaded so if it's like on my iWatch or whatever if I jog or I just don't want to have to rely on the internet um but that said, I, I should do it. I have a friend who said you'll love it. So I may do it soon, but I'm, I don't know. I'm pretty happy. I just can turn on YouTube while I'm working sure. or whatever. That's free. I think streaming services are, you know, obviously stealing money out of the pockets of artists, <laughs> but they're also helping expose a lot of music that people have never heard before. Obviously, if you've got 70 years worth of music on a streaming service, I know that for younger people, it's uh, it's where they discover music, whether it's Radiohead from the 90s or their favorite new band today, or even something from the 50s. I, I feel like it's a really good tool for that. But I understand people's reluctance to, uh, 
use it from the point of view of bands getting paid. I don't know if you know Bandcamp. Bandcamp is uh, bandcamp.com. And this is for our listeners as well. If you want to support independent musicians, pretty much every band that's independent has their music up on Bandcamp. They have a page. You can download it. They get the money. And in many cases, they'll also offer CDs and much more vinyl now. And you can support independent artists uh, directly through that, But which is something that I do personally. But I also use Spotify to discover music. And again, for our listeners, as well as you, Eric, I have a Spark Spotify play- playlist, which is called Spark Radio, new music, new artists. And every week I put five to 10 new songs on it. So uh, I just thought I'd throw that out to everybody. But back to you. And your music, if I ask you to think back on favorite artists and how their music affects you. So let's say, for example, you're in the mood to to dance. What are you going to listen to? Probably 80s or maybe some hip hop. 80s were a fun decade. I do like hip hop. I, I tend to like a little bit of the older stuff, uh, 80s, 90s. Some of the new stuff's okay. I like that the, it's just they've tried harder in the lyrics and the, and the rhyming back then. But that's just, I don't know. So I guess that's what I would do. I would I would probably turn on some kind of uh, 80s party mix. 80s also, I think my kids respond to pretty well too. It's just very, you know, fun music, but I'm not like, I'm not a huge dancer guy. Either, it, it so. is, <laughs> it, it, you don't dance when nobody's looking? Come on. <laughs> I sing when nobody's looking. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it is uh, it, it is interesting, though, that parents and kids and even grandkids today can like the same music. That is just so different from when I was growing up, when I hated my dad's music. My dad hated my music. But, you know, it's a few years ago. Well, I, I should say mostly like my 10 year old, especially as he's emerging and becoming his own person, he'll say in the car, this is boomer music. And I'm like, he calls basically anything older than like seventh grade is a boomer at this point. But I'm like, boomer, I'm Gen X. We were the original boomer fighters. Yeah. So I think it's funny that he's, he equates me with boomers. But that said, sometimes I do have Dylan on. I'm like, okay, fair. Mm-hmm. But he likes uh, sort of hip hop, basically. I can tell he's already getting into that. So I can say there is a gap between mm-hmm. our music. But once in a while, we'll have a song we, we both like. This song, The Weeknd, who did the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. I was like, oh, this is probably just horrible. He asked me to play one of his songs when I was in the car. That's one song I was like, I actually bought it because it was so good. And we both listened to that. So occasionally I'll actually get something from him that's pretty good. But that's rare. Mostly (laughs) I have my music, he has his. You know, music can suit various moods of what we're going through. As I said to you, what makes you want to dance? Is there an album or an artist that you go to? when you're feeling perhaps a little melancholy or when you may be on your own and you want to sit down and maybe listen to some lyrics? Yeah, I mean, I tend to like somewhat depressing music. It actually makes me feel better. It's weird. Um, and also, the more depressing emotive artists tend to be the deeper thinkers sure. and the more textured music. So that's why I'm a big fan of Radiohead. I also like bands like Grizzly Bear, Fleet Foxes, or someone like Elliot Smith, I, I find that he was like basically a one of a kind. And I'll still listen to his stuff if I'm, you know, if I, you know, kind of want to somebody sadder than me. <laughs> no, I mean, he, yeah, he's really good, though. But again, what, what I really like about all the people I just mentioned was just how unique they are. Mm. I mean, they have a voice and it's almost like you can't even cover them. It, it's that unique. And so those are some of the, the artists I look to. Um, and then there's this guy, Goth Babe. I don't know if you've heard of him, but I found him on YouTube and he's a guy who just records songs in his van and travels around the West Coast. And I 
can't believe how good it is. Mm. It, it sounds like it's like a goth band, but it's actually, I don't know what you call it, like indie pop, but yet with a West Coast eye surf and snowboard vibe. Oh, you just, anyway. you just in, invented a new category there. Well, well, well done. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, lately I've been stumbling into more novel, unique acts, but yeah, I've still got my core from back in the day. But yeah, all of those bands I mentioned, definitely heavy on the minor chords. Right. Um, and the lyrics that might not be direct. Do you have an artist that you've liked from whether it was recently or back when you were a teenager or just an artist that you love that nobody else did or an artist that you thought was amazing and would be huge but never quite made it, but you still pull out their records every now and then? You know, going back to that ni- 90s, pre-90s Vanderbilt Station, one of the first bands I saw was Afghan Wigs. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know who they are, but... That guy, I think his name's Greg Dooley. He has such a good Dooley. voice. I thought they would be bigger. Like that's one of those bands that probably deserve to break as big as Nirvana. Not, not mm-hmm. maybe not Nirvana, but some of those bands. I'm surprised they weren't bigger. Um, that just comes to mind. Cat Power is another one. I guess she's pretty big, but she is amazing. And sometimes I'll hear Cat Power and I'll be like, "How is Taylor Swift so popular when you've got like the differential?" I'm fine. Taylor Swift is great, but the differential sometimes between a Taylor Swift. And a cat power or a um, Sharon Van Etten. I'm like, there are some s- really good female singers that I feel like get so overshadowed. Then again, those people are definitely have enough money to do this uh, for oh, a sure. living. So they have some success. Yeah. But those, I guess, would be some examples. Another band that I really loved back in the day that like hardly anybody knows is Archers of Loaf. Sure. You know them? Yeah. They're amazing. And then that guy does some uh, other work with other bands really unique sound but I, I saw them and they never got popular and they're really good um unique sound not for everybody though the good thing about those bands though is you can go see them in a small venue true that and I, i'm just looking up now I'm, i remember archers of love because i was in alternative radio back in the early 90s so all these bands that you're mentioning and even the more recent ones i've probably played on the radio they were out of uh, chapel hill Yep, North uh, Carolina. North Carolina back in the early 90s broke up in 1998, but they did leave some great albums. And Afghan Wigs is a great call, by the way. Um, do you have um, a recent discovery that you'd like to share with us for our Sounds of Success playlist that's going to be on Spotify? Yeah, I mean, how recent? Last month or last year? Whatever. I mean, if it's if okay, I'll, I'll give you one of each. Digging. So, yeah, one artist I just started listening to that sub pop put out which they it's amazing they still put out good music is yasin yeah wow some of the songs on this album it's just like it's all over the place but talk about a creative guy that album is it's very an interesting album it's not for everybody but it's very good now an album that i find is probably more accessible or a band that i discovered is lord huron yes you know that la yeah yeah they are good every time i listen to them i feel like i'm in a stagecoach, like pioneering out in the West. And I don't know, I love that feeling. And it's a good rockabilly kind of sound, but with a, there's, a, there's enough minor chord in it to make it not cheesy and not just country rock. It's a really good band. And everything they put out is, is quality. So those you, would be you, two in the, in the past. Like one was very recent and one was, say, in the last year or so. Yeah, Sub Pop, for those who, who don't know, is the uh, independent label out of Seattle that started, uh, well, they started the whole Seattle scene, really, by signing all those bands way, way early, and they're still going, as you said. The artist you, you talk about, Yatsin, is really interesting. I'd like to just tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about him. It's Ya, one word, Y-A, and then Scene is T S. 
E-E-N. And he's actually an indigenous artist out of Alaska who paints and acts and does all sorts of other things as well. And he's managed to get Portugal the Man to, to help out on a single that's out there right now. So if you're a fan of that band. Um, and, yeah, that uh, song, which is called Knives, yeah. is unbelievable. It reminds it's me, it's as good as anything as like MGMT or Arcade Fire's ever done. Yeah, that said, kinda... that song isn't repl- replicated to the album. Then he goes into some like almost like trip hop. Then he does something that sounds like almost like auto-tuned romance pop. Uh, it, the guy, it's really interesting. The guy just has, goes from genre to genre. It, but that song Knives, I think, is probably the standout. I like it. I just tweeted about it uh, last weekend. Nice. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, you, you should listen to my radio sometime. I'm, I'm telling you, I think you're going to you, you're gonna <laughs> yeah. dig it. I'm, I'm we have some you- overlap. I'm sending you a link right after this. Yeah, there's some great music. I've really enjoyed your choices here. Do you have a, a guilty pleasure musically? Now, mine, because I come from Birmingham and grew up at the same time, mine is Duran Duran. That's my guilty pleasure. What's yours? Yeah. Well, I guess I would join you in that one. But like, I'm trying to think of a guilty pleasure, like, um, you know what comes to mind that I always thought it is the Bee Gees? Now, there's two levels of Bee Gees. There's the disco Bee Gees, but damn, is that melodic stuff, especially if you're just feeling good. Some of those nice disco songs are just very good. They're very well produced. But then if you go further back, early Bee Gees, they were actually, they were like Elliot Smith's ad. They put out that song, I Started a Joke that Caused the Whole World Laughing. And they were this sort of folky, sad band, and they were amazing. They're almost a little Neil Youngish. So the Bee Gees to me are underrated, both the way they got known for staying alive, even though I think some of that's okay, and then the pre-Bee Gees. So, but if I said I listened to Bee Gees, that, I think that would be like, I would lose street cred. I, I don't know. I don't Maybe. know. I, I think we all didn't want to talk about liking the Bee Gees in the 90s, for example. But as you pointed out, there were different versions of the Bee Gees. I mean, they started off in Australia and had a little career there. And then they went to Manchester in the UK where they had their first sort of uh, blush of success with some big pop hits when they were sort of doing psychedelic uh, pop. And then obviously they just blew up uh, around the Saturday Night Fever movie and and, and all that went uh, along with that. And just those songs are unbelievable. Have you seen the HBO documentary? No. You've got to see it. It came out a couple of months ago, right at the beginning of the year. I mean, we've all been watching so much stuff for the last year, and maybe we're overdone on documentaries and crime shows. But for anybody listening, uh, do yourself a favor and check out the HBO documentary about the Bee Gees, because it does cover all of that stuff um, that, that you were talking about. So I think that kind of wraps us up here. Guilty pleasure, Bee Gees. That's a good one. How are you feeling right now? I always like to ask at the end of the interview, uh, sat down with somebody for half an hour and we've had a, a conversation we've sort of broken digital bread how do you feel after our uh, our little little chat here it's good you know you make me miss just hanging out with people who are talking music i used to do this a lot uh, when i lived in manhattan in the late 90s um you know we would just sit there and like go to the record store you know talk about the latest pavement album or whatever and it just I miss it. I actually interned at Virgin Records. That was my first job. I was almost going to go into the music business. I got a lot of good CDs from there. A lot of bad ones too, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> See, I just grabbed whatever they had. So I was yeah. like, well, that's yeah. good. Oh, that's awful. But I discovered a couple uh, gems in there. But anyway, yeah, no, it's good to talk this stuff. I'm normally on podcasts talking about ETFs yeah. and stocks and stuff. So this is, uh, this is great because I do find though that music um, and movies, but music is probably the number one version of this is 
it can freshen up your mind and give you inspiration. And it's like worth the, the hunt and, you know, to go find, and there's so much still being made. that's really good. It's just hard to find it given that the popular songs on the radio, there's like a limited amount of space there, but so I've been trying my best to get back into it. So this is giving me another, I think, momentum boost to keep going because I love the feeling of, of discovering a new band, finding a new song and the inspiration that comes. You have to dig around a little bit, obviously, back in the day, the filters were, well, there weren't many. I mean, if it wasn't on the radio or in Rolling Stone, you probably didn't know about it. And there's just so much out there now. Maybe there are too many people making, making music. I'm not sure. You know, the digital technology, it's a double-edged sword because obviously it gives sure. everybody the opportunity to make music and it gives everybody the opportunity to make music. But as uh, you sort of look around, there's so many different places and, and opportunities to, to discover new music. And uh, I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to talk to us about your music. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Eric Balchunas has been our guest. I'm Nick Harcourt. And this has been The Sound of Success. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. Music